Welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study here at Celebration Church. Glad that you have joined with us. Welcome our campuses over in Stevens Point and Appleton as well. It was good to be with the Appleton people last week. Excited as we uh, started for the first time broadcasting from one of the other campuses. We're going to continue to tweak that and do more of that. And we are actually working now on uh, getting uh, what it's going to take for Point to do it. We're going we're gonna to test and see if the uh, bandwidth over there is fast enough despite not having the uh, fiber optics that we normally have. But we're going to take it all out. We're excited about it. The more that we connect, I think it's better for the church overall. Uh, we are in our New Testament study. <clears throat> what we've done is we started with the book of Acts, because obviously we've, we've gone through the Gospels uh, in many ways. But we started with the book of Acts and are now going through the entire New Testament and putting it in order, because for some bizarre reason, and I don't know why, the Bible is not in sequential order. It gets very confusing sometimes. Not so much in the New Testament because the order really isn't that important, but certainly in the Old Testament it gets really confusing because books are just randomly put all over the place uh, and not in the order they were written or presented and stuff, so it gets a little confusing. Uh, I would really recommend if you're going to do a really in-depth study of the Old Testament uh, to get a chronological Bible. There's all kinds of them out there that actually do put it in order. You will find it makes a lot more sense. I know they have the... Uh, one-year Bibles and stuff where they kind of, but it's still just in the order that it's laid out. It's not in order. It's like, I don't know what's going on, but you put it in order, it's a lot better. So again, not as critical in the New Testament, but nonetheless, we are putting it in order uh, and reading it as it was written. And uh, so we're in the book of Acts, and every time we get along in the book of Acts where they said an epistle was written, then we jump to that epistle. And, uh, and we've been doing that. Uh, we're getting actually close to the end of the book of Acts. We just finished Romans. Um, I think there's uh, one more letter uh, to the Philippians that is written in this. As soon as we get to the end of Acts is when all the other letters that Paul wrote while in prison, uh, and we'll go through those and then start introducing the other ones. So anyway, we are now in uh, Acts, the 20th chapter, <clears throat> uh, picking it up at about verse 17. What has happened here is uh, Paul was in Ephesus for some time and uh, heard about problems in Corinth, wrote that first letter to the Corinthians. Uh, he starts moving up here to go on his way to visit the Corinthians again. When he gets up here, well, oh, actually, when he, when he leaves Ephesus and gets here, uh, the dialogue uh, changes a little bit. The way it's written, up until this point, everything is Paul did this and Peter did that and they went there and they went there. But as soon as he leaves Ephesus, now we did this and then we took this trip to there and we got... So obviously that's when Luke, the one who wrote the Gospel of Luke and who was also writing this, uh, joins up with Paul for a very short time. Because as soon as Paul leaves here, it's back to they again. So apparently he, he goes up here, he stays, he stays in uh, Philippi. Uh, Paul comes down here when he's here. He writes the letter to the Romans, which we just finished. Now he's coming back up here again. Uh, as soon as he gets to Philippi, it turns back into we. And now, uh, from here on out, the uh, detail, the level of detail jumps really rather dramatically because Luke is actually there. And this isn't reports, you know, as, as often things, historical things in the scriptures. This is firsthand eyewitness accounts. 
And, uh, and it really jumps considerably in terms of detail. We'll point it out as we go along. You'll start seeing it, some of it right away. At times, these last few chapters read more like a novel than uh, your typical Bible accounts because he was there and it's really a lot of detail and stuff. So it's kind of interesting to read. So he is on his way. He is absolutely fit to be tied to get back to Jerusalem. We're going to read about that in just a second. Uh, so when he comes here, he, he stops at uh, Midalene, whatever that's called, yeah? And uh, rather than, no, I'm sorry, he's here at Miletus. He, he, he goes around Ephesus, but he wants to say goodbye to the people at Ephesus. So when he gets there, he calls for the Ephesus, uh, Ephesian elders to come down, and then he has his big goodbye before he goes on. And we're about to read his big goodbye. So at the verse 17, from Miletus, Miletus, however you say it, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. All you have to do, again, is remember some of the accounts in uh, the letter to the uh, Corinthians how detailed at times he, he said his life was so miserable. At times he said, I wish I, was, just, I wish I would just die. I mean, he went through suffering. That's not recorded. We don't know what it is. But uh, he really had a hard time. And he suffered terribly for the cause of Christ. And he's letting these guys, guys know, hey, remember, I mean, this, this was very, very tough for all of us. Um, I, I suffered uh, severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now compelled by the Spirit. Another word, compelled, means to be forced, (laughs) pushed, all right? Compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Well, He kind of knows. He says, I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me (laughs) that prison and hardships are facing me. Now, this actually opens up kind of a theological question with this whole account here. Um, And we'll see this. Everywhere he goes, already he's been, it's the first time he alludes to it in the writing, but people under the power of the Holy Spirit. And one one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit you know, is, is, is a sense of what's coming and that sort of thing, prophecy or whatever. And they would be praying for him and then the Holy Spirit would make it known that, hey, you're headed to Jerusalem, you're headed for trouble. They're going to hurt you. This, this is going to be bad when you get there. Uh, so they're warning him. And he says the Holy Spirit warns. Now, what's confusing about it is generally when you warn someone, the implication is don't go, Right? So he says, I feel compelled by the Holy Spirit to go, but the Holy Spirit's warning me what's going to happen when I get there. Uh, Deb and I were talking about this today, trying to get a handle on it, but uh, clearly the Lord, we'll find out a little bit later, the Lord Jesus appears to him in a vision and tells him, you need to get to Jerusalem. So God is behind this. It's just weird the way they uh, talk about how the Holy Spirit warns him not to go. And they're begging him at times, please don't go. And they have this one prophet, we're going to read it in just a minute, who comes in a real dramatic Old Testament type fashion to warn them what's going to happen if you go. And he goes anyway. So I don't know. It's a little odd. 
I don't understand all this stuff. All I know is the Lord, he felt God wanted him to go, but at the same time, the Holy Spirit's warning him. My wife says, well, it's well, probably so much warning as just letting him know what was going to happen, just like Jesus knew what was going to happen to him. I said, yeah, but then why do you use the word warn? I don't know. All I know is that's what's going on. So uh, the Holy Spirit is certainly letting him know, and everybody's <laughs> warning him not to go, begging him not to go, uh, that... Uh, Prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. So on the other hand, his whole life has been nothing but hardships and beatings and arrests. And for the Holy Spirit said, if you go down there, you're going to get beaten and arrested. It's like another day at the office, right? So I don't know. It didn't freak him out at all. Uh, it's just odd is why they kept revealing to him that was going to happen. It's, uh, I don't know. Ask Joe. All right, so now. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom of God will ever see me again. So the Holy Spirit lets him know, this is it. This is, I'm going to Jerusalem. You guys will never see me again. And, uh, and of course, that really shocks them, which we'll see in just a minute. Therefore, I declare to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So these are the pastors, the elders of the church. He's warning, keep guard. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Now, he's not talking about actual wolves eating sheep. What he's talking about is poisonous men who are going to come in and try to do great harm to the church. He knows they're coming. The Holy Spirit's let him know that it's coming. He's warning them that it's coming. Be on your guard. And even worse, the very next phrase says, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth to draw, in order to draw away disciples after them. So that's like you know, the ultimate insult in a way. He got them all there, and even some of you guys are going to do this. And that had to be shocking to them. What are you saying? I'm saying some of you are going to turn in one of these, some of these wolves and try to destroy everything. Now the question is why? Why do people do this? Why do people get crazy and uh, pull people after themselves? Because this kind of stuff happens even to this very day. Um, now, I think because of so much of the teaching of the scripture, there's, we're not quite as uh, susceptible to crazy teaching. But that spirit of people wanting to follow me and do my own thing and listen to me, don't listen to the other guys, exists almost every church. Um, our church has been uh, through several rounds of this. It's been wonderful for the last several years. I dare say the vast majority of people who come to this church want to come here and love it here. And it's wonderful. We've been talking about this all year, how wonderful this has been, that we finally feel like everybody likes me. <laughs> and, and you have no idea. You know, there's a, couple, there's a couple of crazy ones still here. I get that. And we hear from them every once in a while. They, they send letters and they don't sign their name, which I hope whoever is here would be great if they're listening or if you're here right now. Just a clue. The first thing I do when I open a letter is I look if it's signed. If it's not signed... In the garbage, he goes. So you're really wasting your time sending me unsigned letters. What it does let me know is that there's still some crazy people there. 
all right? But it's, it's way little. So the question is, why do people do this? There becomes this, you know, Paul talks about, you know, some of the attitudes of the flesh is this party spirit. Now, that doesn't mean, woo, let's party. <laughs> it means, like, you know, like, Democrat, Republican, you know, my group, their group, that kind of, that kind of party, that breaking up of stuff. And some people, for whatever insane reason, desire to be thought of as the big cheese among whatever group that they influence. And they actually enjoy getting you to pull after them and fight the pastor or the elders of the church. This happens in every church, has always happened. And I'm, I'm sure, just like in Paul's case, talking, it will continue to happen. Uh, we're fairly quick to try and surgically remove it, all right? And even some of you here right now who you think, oh, I would never think that, you'd be shocked how in a year and a half, two years, three years from now, some even you would do, work as hard as you can to derail me and insult me and try to get everybody to come listen to you because you listen to some new guy on Christian radio that has some great insights that's much smarter than everybody else and, and you like to be, there's just something about it. It is a temptation that is in people. I urge you, as Paul urged them, don't go down that rat hole, all right? If you got issues, bring them up, but don't, don't it's, it just feeds your flesh when you think you're smarter than everybody else, okay? If you're to that point, because I always think, who does that? Who, you know what I'm saying? kind of crazy people. I mean, I've been in churches for years, years, where I thought the pastor was like crazy. But I never said it to him. I mean, who says that, right? When you start rising up and getting vocal and making a stand and getting people on your side, there's something wrong in your head and in your heart. Don't do that. Rebuking pastors and stuff. You say, well, what if I think you're wrong? Well, because that's horrible, then quietly leave. <laughs> you know? But they don't want to quietly leave. They want to grab as many people as they can. And, uh, and here's the thing always be careful of. And I'm warning you, as Paul warned them. People who get upset always seem to make other people more upset than they are. You understand what I'm saying? Let's say I pick on John here. And I get John really mad. He's mad about whatever because, uh, you know, I gave him a taco when he wanted a hot dog. I don't know, whatever. He's, he's all upset and wounded in his spirit. All right, because we didn't have tacos or something. Well, then he starts talking to 100 people that he knows in the church and gets them more mad than he's mad. Right? And then he leaves and he drags all those people with him. This is repeated over and over. It's happened many times in the last 12 years since we've been here. Small groups. Every once in a while, there's a, somebody gets really good at it. But uh, we're, we're, much, we're much quicker to jump on that stuff than we used to. Uh, and so don't get mad because of what somebody else said. Good grief. Life has got enough grief, right? If I tick you off, then okay, I tick you off. But I didn't even tick you off. You're ticked off because I ticked off John. Did you talk to me about it? No. Why? Because John said it and I believe John and you're evil. Really? Stop. Don't get sucked into somebody else's vortex. Are you hearing me? But they wanted burritos, not tacos. Is that what it was? Yeah. yeah. Don't, don't go into John's vortex is all I'm trying to say. No, John's, John's great. But I'm just saying every group does this, right? And they find people and they try to suck them into their black hole. You know, and just, just don't do it. If you have a question about something like that, you know, if Joe gets somebody over here mad and he tells you, well, go talk to Joe about it. Joe, what happened? And then those people find, and then they calm down. 
that I just don't understand getting mad because somebody else is mad. And actually being more mad than like I was mad. It's always second... What was the phrase I want to use? Second hand. Second, second hand, second generation offense always seems to be worse than the first generation offense. So if I tick you off because you want to sing a solo in church and I won't let you sing a solo because, you know, you suck. <laughs> and then all your friends who don't think you suck because none of them can listen, you know, and they can't hear, get all upset and they get all, and they're much more mad. And then even those people, what's so funny is some of those people who have a big blowout like that, then we'll see them a few months later and they'll talk to me and say, oh man, I'm just, just sorry about all that. And they make peace with you, they're fine. But the people who are, st- the second ones are still mad. They're the ones that take the biggest offense and the greatest wound. And the Bible warns against that because you, you're actually causing other people to stumble at that point. Because you're having such a hissy fit about something and you're ruining other people's faith. Because a lot of people sometimes will leave and they'll go, to, and they don't, well, they wind up, there are no churches at all now. They never go to church anymore and stuff like that. You're actually messing with them just because you want to have such a meltdown. And says, so anyway, that's always there. It's not here today. I promise you. I promise you it's coming. I don't know when in Stephen Point somebody's going to do something that's going to try, or in Appleton someone's going to try to do it and just try and suck you into their vortex. Just try not to go down the rat hole with them, all right? Don't become a second generation, a secondhand offender. Man, don't do it. Don't do it. Anyway, so there's something about this ego. These guys like that. And he says they like to draw disciples after them. That's what it's all about. Follow me. Be like me. Think the way I think. I didn't get what I want. So he's warning them. So be on your guard, he says, verse 31. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you day and night with tears. Why? He's saying, it's coming. I know it's coming. Now what happens to them is really it was much more intense than anything I'm talking about. I'm talking about offense. These guys would not only, for the, for the sake of just ego, would then start throwing in false doctrines and heresies and making stuff up that was actually just trying to destroy parts of Christianity. And again, the church has been around for 2,000 years now. We've got a, kind of a handle on psychotic doctrines and we're pretty quick to step in. These guys were, first, these were really, you're talking about first generation. They, they were hearing stuff they'd never heard before. And maybe that's true. And, uh, and it was very damaging to them. So he warns them all about it. Verse 32, now I commit to you, uh, God, uh, try that again. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver, gold, or clothing, You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. Uh, Paul taught the biblical concept that those who benefit spiritually should return physically to them uh, who benefit. That's the idea of uh, paying pastors and those full-time church workers and providing for them because they minister to us spiritually. But even though he preached that very much, he wouldn't do it. He refused to do it. I'm not taking money from anybody, so no one can ever say later, you're doing it for the money. So he worked with his own hands. Uh, We know that he was a tent maker. We read that earlier in Acts. Uh, And even if he himself wasn't doing it, then some of the guys that were traveling with him, they would all go work so that he, you know, they would all work so they didn't have to take any money from anybody. They tried it. The only money he took with him was when he was going on this tour of trying to raise a bunch of money to take to Jerusalem and help the poor struggling uh, Jews in Jerusalem, which is 
part of the reason they're coming down. They're, by the way, they're loaded for bear. You know, it's a little dangerous to be traveling with that much cash. Again, they didn't have, you know, American Express. There was no way to, you know, forward stuff to the bank or transfer funds. They actually physically carried it on themselves. If anybody would have had a hint of how much cash they had on them, they would have been waylaid. All right? But just on the down low, loaded, chink, 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 all right? And, uh, and they, uh, and they, they uh, carries all this, carried all the money to Jerusalem. But that's not for himself. That was for them. Um, and everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, in other words, earning your own bread, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus, uh, that the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. One of the things that Paul tried to really hammer, and we'll read it in some of his other epistles, is get off your butt and go earn your own income. Don't expect the church to pay your bills. All right? Now, in the early church, that's exactly what happened. Remember? They started out as this gigantic commune. Everybody got together and sold everything, and they all had money together, and they all shared. It was very idealistic and very wonderful. And we try to emulate as much as we can about trying to let people know they have needs and let each other needs, and, and people can step up and help. But we don't do it like those guys did. They went like nutsoid and created this big, you know, commune thing. Of course, then they all wound up in trouble financially later. The reason they did it, as we've said many times, they thought when Jesus said, I'm coming back, it's like he's going for milk, all right? He's coming back right away. Who, I mean, if you knew, if you, I mean, you knew, 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 knew that in three months Jesus was coming back, would you go to work tomorrow? I wouldn't, you know? I mean, I just, you know, it's just sell the house and let's all, you know, hang out and we'll pool the money and stuff. Jesus is coming right back and... What? Well, years are ticking off here. He hadn't come back yet. It's like, ah, you know. So, and then, so he now has to drill into their heads, hey, get off your butt, go work. The only people that they would financially support uh, were widows. And we'll see that when we get into this uh, thing. So how come the church doesn't, every once in a while, how come the church doesn't help people with their bills? So, actually, the Bible teaches against that. Uh, now, having said that, you know, if you're in big trouble, come talk to us, but we'll, we run you through a filter. It's not easy to get money out of. Not that we're trying to hold back from people. People get angry about it sometimes, especially the people who want the money. But the Bible actually teaches that's not the way this works. Now you get in trouble and it's a short-term thing and people will step up and, and try and help you the best they can. But uh, none of this continual, ba ba ba, you know, knocking on the door, although we don't do that. People, come, people always come to churches, by the way, all week long, we'll get this. People in town who, you know, I, I need, you know, money for, you know, whatever. Uh, and we send them to, you know, Salvation Army or somebody else. You know, so there's an organization that that's all they do. But they've already milked them dry. You see, so they come to us and they do this to other churches and stuff like that. So anyway, he says the only people that should be getting money were widows. Okay. Say, why widows? You have to remember, this is a culture. We talked about this a couple of Sundays ago. Back in the day when women were at a huge disadvantage, the gospel was the first religion in the world. Jesus were lifted women up and said, women are equal to men in, in every way. I mean, it was, it was very, very powerful. But, you know, even though that's spiritually, they still had to deal with the realities of life, right? And the realities of life is women often were at a huge uh, financial disadvantage. If their husband kicked, they had no way to make an income. And it was bad. And uh, they didn't have the rights and all the other stuff. So 
In the case of widows, they would support the widows, but only if the widow had no relatives. In the church, particularly. If there's a widow over here, say, you know, I, you know, my, I got a cousin over here. She, uh, you know, her husband died. She can't make any, make any help. They would look at the guy and say, support your cousin. It's your cousin, right? Take care of your family. I mean, it was big. They hammered. And this is one of the things that even to this day, what they call it in the, the Protestant work ethic, is you earn your own bread and you take care of your own family. All right? That was like really, really big. Uh, in the early days of Christianity, it came out real big again in the Protestant Reformation. That's why historically, just Google it, you'll see Protestant work ethic, and boom, it pops up. And it's very, it's an absolute set in stone historical fact that those people of the Protestant, I don't know why the Catholics got left on this, I don't know. It was Protestantism that pushed this idea of you pay your own bills, you work for your own bread, and you take care of your own stinking family. Don't bring them here. Now that sounds really cruel, but we'll see when we get it. That's why Paul did it. So he was really into this. And he, and he says, you, you know, uh, in everything I did, I showed you to do life this way. Not only is that you can take care of yourself, but so that you can help others because it's more blessed to give than to receive. So he really worked hard and we'll run against this, we'll see again, in some of these letters that he writes to the church about how to handle this stuff. And at times it seems extraordinarily cruel. He basically says at one point, I don't think we've hit in any of the epistles yet, but to whatever one of them says, basically if you don't work, you don't eat. I'm hungry. Got a job? No. Sucks to be you, all right? I mean, and it seemed really harsh, okay? But again, I mean, he's trying to set the standard of this Christian work ethic that eventually became known as a Protestant earth. I don't know what happened to Catholics again. I don't get it. So anyway. Anyway, so when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. And they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement, as I read earlier, that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. After we, remember, here's the we's all popping up now. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Kos. So they're here, and Kos is like down here. Uh, and then uh, we went to Rhodes, and then to Patara, which is here. Uh, and it's real interesting. Pastor Joseph, for some bizarre reason, I cannot find any one map. You would think, as anal as Christians get, that there would be maps that would show you exactly where places stops. And none of them do that. They all just kind of go, ah, he went over here. Well, no, it says that he stopped here. And they don't show it. We found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, so we went on board and set sail. So they're heading this direction. So, okay, so we have to ride with these guys. And uh, after sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, so here's Cyprus, they're passing to the south of it. Uh, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, which is here, which again, the thing just goes, ah, but he stops here, all right? And where our ship was unlo where it unloaded its cargo, and we sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Again, the warnings. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. You would know this because the whole line skips the whole city. 
but that's where they stopped to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home and we continued on our voyage and landed at Palatmus or however you say that. Uh, so anyway, we were greeted by the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. So again, are you already getting a sense of the kind of detail now that we're getting? You know, we hopped here, we come and we see Cyprus, we decided to, stay to, decided to sail to the south, we landed at Tyre, we went and saw the brothers and sisters, we stayed there for seven days, we, they, all the kids and everybody walked us to the beach, we knelt down on the beach, held hands and prayed, and then we got on the boat, and then, I mean, this, we're just talking levels of detail that are much higher than we've been seeing uh, to date. Um, and, it's, and it's very much in sequential order here. Um, after saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard to return home. We continued on our way to Tyre and landed at, however you say that word, where we were greeted by, with the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we, leaved, we, left, uh, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist. Caesarea, which is here. So now they're here. So they said, now they're here. Uh, Philip is one of the seven. Seven what? Anybody know? One of the seven dwarfs. <laughs> Grumpy and, you know, what was the name? Smelly? No, it wasn't smelly. Okay, but. <laughs> you, that you know, but you don't know who the seven in the Bible is. Seven what? Anybody? Deacons, thank you. Who said that? Give that girl a kiss. Kiss her, kiss her right now. Come on, give her a kiss. There we go, all right. It's his wife, by the way. <laughs> He said, kiss the lady. I don't know who she was. <laughs> All right, so early in the book of Acts, there were these seven deacons that were set up. They were the first ones. And Philip, we read about. He was this guy. We read about some of the stuff that he had done. We haven't heard about him for a while now, but this is so. Years have passed, and they stopped by Philip's house. And he was one of the early disciples. And uh, so he did just make a point of it that they stayed with Philip. Uh, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Okay. Not the point of that is, but we, now we know. After, I'll tell you what is helpful, is just so that people, anyone who thinks that they never allowed women to speak, they don't understand what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians. If they were never allowed to speak, how were there women deaconesses in the church? How were there women who prophesied in the church? Huh? Whoa, wait a minute, because the prophecy is basically standing up and preaching and teaching. Oh, it doesn't make any sense. Just, again, you have to look at the context of that 1 Corinthians letter that he wrote, and he's trying to put order in the church, and the way they had church was, it's, what's really bizarre is Paul's direction about how to do church in 1 Corinthians. Nobody does church that way. Nobody that I'm aware of, except like a little home group somewhere. They hear about someone who has a home church, and everybody, you know who does it probably the most is a, uh, they're all living in horse and buggies and stuff. What's her name? Amish. My brain just like doesn't function at times. I don't know. So, so the Amish, you know, when they gather together, different people get up and share and preach and teach and they kind of rotate around and they have the strict rules about how to do stuff. And he said, if you got questions about what the guy's saying, ask your husband at home. Don't be going, what? I don't understand. So you got, he was kind of tough on the girls with that. But this, I, now again, Nobody even does church like that anymore, of any church that I know, except for little small groups, or if you're Amish, okay? Uh, on Sunday morning, we're not gonna let you get up and just randomly come up here and preach. Our security team will carry you out, all right? 
So again, it's just, I talked about it already. Get the tapes. All right, so, or download tapes. Nobody has tapes anymore. Digital downloads. So he had four daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming, now this is very Old Testament, very dramatic. All right? Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt. It's like, do I know you? All right? And he ties his own hands and feet with it. Very Old Testament dramatic. If you read the Old Testament prophets, they would do all kinds of those real dramatic things like that. And he says, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. So he comes in in dramatic Old Testament style, prophesies, you're headed for trouble. You go to Jerusalem, they're going to arrest you and turn you over to the Gentiles. Again, more warnings. That's why it's a little confusing. Why are you warning him if you... I don't know. I don't understand. But uh, it is what it is. Again, that's why some people, when you, if you look at it, they debate the theology of it. One, that either Paul was maybe not supposed to be going to Jerusalem. The problem with this is, he says he felt compelled, which, what does that mean? But when he has the vision of Jesus later on, he says, I need you to go to, to, to Rome. Don't worry about things. Hang in there. So you have to pretty much hang with it that this was God's plan for Paul. I don't get it. Anyway, uh, what happens is after this, wait, 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 I'm sorry. Verse 12, when we heard this and saw this dramatic thing with Agabus, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Even Luke is jumping in on this. Don't go. Don't go, everybody keeps saying, it's going to be bad, it's going to be bad. Now Agabus shows up, grabs your belt, does this weird thing. Don't go! Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be dissuaded, he wouldn't listen to anybody, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. What else are you going to do? I mean, it's not like he didn't know what was coming. And why he'd get warnings, I don't know. Anyway, he was going to Jerusalem. And again, on the other hand, the threat of you're going to wind up prisoned and beaten as it was another day at the office for him. So it wasn't a big deal. If someone starts prophesying that if I go to, you know, like Appleton, I'm going to get mugged and beaten, I ain't going. You know? I don't routinely get mugged and beaten. You know what I'm saying? I, I want to avoid that sort of thing. I guess if that happened every day, so so what? I'm going to Appleton. Who cares? So uh, after this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem, uh, which is always interesting because it's always down to Jerusalem on the map. But Jerusalem was always the center of the universe for these people, and it was always going up. We're always going up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manasseh, Manasseh, whatever. There we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus, and he was also one of the early disciples, pointing out they're getting back in this area where Christianity had first blossomed. And you know, mentioned Philip, and now this guy. Now, when we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James. James is now 
and has been for quite some time, the head cheese of the church at Jerusalem. Which, you know, not to pick on the Catholics, I don't care. Don't write me, I don't want to hear it, all right? All I, because their thing is that Peter was the first pope and he was in charge of everything, and you see almost no evidence of that other than the opening few months or whatever in Jerusalem where Peter was clearly in charge, but then it all goes to James, uh, who is, again, not to mess with the Catholics, but the half-brother of Jesus. We know that Jesus had brothers and sisters. Most people, if you're not Catholic, understand that as uh, Mary was a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus, but after that, there was no prohibition for her not to be with her husband, and then they were a normal couple. Catholics believe, no, that would have never happened because for some reason they have this idea that sex corrupts you and you're evil. I mean, it's just, it's a bizarre, from my viewpoint, very bizarre. They say, when they're talking about brothers and sisters, it means his cousins. It doesn't say cousins. But anyway, all of this, uh, James is the head guy. And actually, he's the first epistle that was written in the New Testament. Remember, we're reading in the book of Acts, the first place we stopped and went to James, because the letter of James was the first one that was written. Uh, and that's the one that's really specifically written to Jewish Christians. That was before Gentile, non-Jewish Christians was even a thing much at that point, okay? So anyway, so go, and then they go to see James, because James is like, you know, he's the head guy. So they set out to see James, and all the elders were present. And Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And at this point, he has got a lot to share because of everything we've been reading. I mean, it's pretty dramatic what God has done through the whole. To them, this is the world. Right, this is the world. He was getting ready to go up into to a Spain, but uh, that's really the outreaches of the world at that time. So they pretty much had evangelized the world uh, known to them, the civilized world then. Uh, and so they're talking about that, what God had done. Uh, when they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, now this is real interesting. You gotta kind of follow this one. Uh, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed? What does that mean? Believed what? Believed in Jesus. Thousands of Jews had come to Christ. Uh, and all of them are zealous for the law. So we're setting up the conflict now. Up to this point, um, the only one who was really doing much of any work with the Gentiles was Paul. In fact, the uh, early apostles said, well, you know, we'll stay to the Jews and, and you go. God bless you. You go talk to those people. <laughs> because this idea of Judaism and being a Jew was a big stinking deal. And uh, what irritated them to no end was the fact that Gentile Christians were allowed to become Christians without becoming Jews first. That was the conflict. Remember, he just said, you know what, uh, the trouble I ran into with the Jews. The problem was, wherever he would go, he would talk about God and the Messiah and everything else. And you're going to see in just a minute, well, if we get through it today, you'll see next week, but uh, where the, he would preach about Jesus and stuff, and they didn't have any problem with that. You know, we've always heard that. You know, the Jews didn't want to accept Jesus as the Messiah. Based on this, they had no problem with Jesus being the Messiah at all. That wasn't their problem. It's when he says he was going to preach to the Gentiles. They went crazy. 
and they hated him for it. The whole thing of why this why Jews, uh, Judaism separated from Christianity, because at this point, it's still the center of Christianity, was because we started letting these scumbag Gentiles in, which is all of us, all right? And, and so this idea, they couldn't handle the idea of Jesus being the Messiah, I'm telling you, is not an accurate telling of what historically happened. Uh, lots of them at this point had believed in Jesus, but were still hardcore Jews, which is fine. Paul never said that was a problem. And he was, and you notice, like when we were reading the whole letter to the, to the Romans, he talked to the Jews for a little bit, and then he talked to the Gentiles, and then talked to the Jews. In fact, he talked a lot to the Jews for some reason in Rome. I don't know what that was about. But I think just kind of just settling them in, trying to let them know what's going on. Uh, he didn't have a problem with them being Jews. What they had a problem with that, he would let the Gentiles off the hook. Well, the church had already ruled the Gentiles are off the hook. Okay? But he knew that there were people who were still ticked about it. So he, they're already setting up the warning here. He said, you see how many thousands of Jews have believed? This is awesome. All these Jews all over the place now believe in Jesus. It was commonplace. They didn't have a problem with that. That all of them are zealous for the law. And they've been informed that you teach all Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. So even here, the church is being careful, saying, it isn't so much the problem that uh, you're with the Gentiles, although that was really the problem, which we'll see them explode in a little bit. Um, he says, the problem is that you're, you're telling Jews that they don't have to be circumcised anymore, and you don't have, they don't have to obey the law of Moses and stuff anymore. And stuff. Well, if you read Paul's writings from a very strict Christian viewpoint, we don't live by the law of Moses anymore. And he was pretty strong about that, but he wasn't necessarily telling them to forbid them to do that. Uh, it, it all gets really muddled and complicated, all they know is that the rumor is that Paul is telling Jewish people they don't have to be Jewish anymore, and that ticked them off. Because if you're a Jew, you've got to stay strict to the laws of Moses. There's actually, there's an argument that could be made that if you are a Jew, a Christian Jew, that a Christian Jew should still live as a Jew. And there's a lot of Christian Jews who believe that, and they'll tell you that, and they still live by the laws, and they don't eat the bacon, and they all, you know, Saturday, the whole deal, all they live just like Jews, but they're Christians. Uh, I know a lot of uh, Jewish Christians, though, that once they become Christians, they tap into the writings of Paul that say, hey, the reality is we have to live by the law, and they go, great. <laughs> so all the ones I know don't. Yeah, but they live just like the rest of us. Um, anyway, so this was a big deal. So you're, we hear you're telling Jews they don't have to be Jews anymore. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you've come. Oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. So, here, do what we tell you. Now, there are four men with us here that have made a vow. Uh, they take these men and join them in their purification rites and pay their expenses, cover the expenses for the things so they can have their head shaved. I'm not going to go into it. Google it yourself. But they, they go into, you know, these different rites and rituals and stuff, which is, again, thank God we don't have to do all this stuff. But the Jews, I mean, they got their really strict rituals and they had these purification rites and these guys had made vows. And he says, so listen, these guys have made vows. They're Christians, right? They're Jewish Christians. They live just like Jews. So he says, join up with these guys and do it so everybody can see that you're still a Jew. All right? Which the next word says, then everyone will know. There's no truth to these reports about you, but you that you or yourself are living in, a, in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we admit 
We have written to them with our decision that they should abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. That's, those are the only rules from the Old Testament New Testament Christians have to uh, obey. Obey. Uh, obey. Not a big problem because I don't know a whole lot of people that drink blood. Uh, uh, we don't sacrifice animals to idols unless doing something at the butcher counter at festival that I'm not aware of. Okay. And, uh, and sexual immorality. We're not supposed to be sexually immoral. Okay. So anyway, they decided, okay. So the next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. And he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. So he goes through the whole thing. Uh, there is, we've, we saw it in the book of Acts earlier where Paul would speak against trying to have to be uh, live by the Jewish rules, but then he would still try and live by them. Uh, although he was, I don't know, I think he kind of lived this real dance thing back and forth. And I'm sure it was really challenging at times. Um, uh, was it Timothy that he took and got circumcised right away? Yeah, right after he wrote the letter to the Galatians saying, you don't need to be circumcised. The very next thing, he takes Timothy and he circumcises him. But Timothy's dad was a Jew. Okay, so, so you just see this line. The struggle for these guys was, particularly for Paul and for the Jewish Christians, as he allowed them to live by the law, but forbade them to put the law on the other ones, which you can imagine the tension it brought, right? If we're saying everybody on this side of the church has to follow all these very strict rules that you were raised with, okay, these guys can do whatever they want. Well, that's not fair, right? To these guys, and, and again, so it, it just, that's what we keep, that's what we've been reading about, this big deal. This was the big problem in early Christianity, was balancing this thing out. So anyway, in the seven days of this thing they went through, purification right, were over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. Aha! They stirred up the whole crowd and seized, seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he's brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place, which he hadn't done. He goes on parenthetically, parenthetically saying uh, they had previously seen Trophomius with the Ephesian in the city with Paul, and they just assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple, which Paul wouldn't have done. Uh, but to a great... <laughs> <laughs> to a great degree, what they're saying is true. Paul did tell them, and we've read it a hundred times, you don't have to live by the law of Moses, and it ticked them off. But what he was trying to be careful is, I'm teaching this to the Gentiles. They can come by faith, although the lines were just blurred as can be. Anyway, they're ticked off. The whole city was aroused. And the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple. And immediately, the gates were shut. <sighs> Keep him out. While they were trying to kill him, so they're beating the snot out of him. News reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. Now, this is a big deal. The Romans had it up to here with the Jews. I mean, they just, they just did not like them. They are a, 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 an oppressive... Uh, occupying army, and uh, the Jews were always giving them grief, and they would always just come down really hard on the Jews. They were trying to keep the rules. 
eventually gets so bad that the Romans come and they just destroy Jerusalem. I mean, they kill them all. And they surrounded the city. As people would try to escape, they grab and crucify them. For miles, they says, they, were, they ran out of wood. That's so many people crucified. It was a bloodbath of astronomical proportions. That's what, when you're looking back, when Jesus saw the city, he wept over the city of Jerusalem, said, if you would have only repented. We believe that he is seeing what's about to happen to them, which doesn't happen for, what, 70 years or, yeah. So, uh, anyway, the Romans... Here the Jews again, they're going crazy. And they're yelling and screaming. So, at once he, uh, he took, he at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. And when the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul, which I'm sure Paul really appreciated. <laughs> the commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Why? Well, he must have done something bad. <laughs> Why are they beating him? They tended to jump to, to some conclusions, all right? Uh, then uh, he asked who he was and what he'd done. Well, some in the crowd shouted one thing and some shouted another thing. And since the commander couldn't get to the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. They're going crazy. They want to kill this guy. Well, the crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of them, get rid of them, oh, they're all going nuts. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? But he says it in Greek. Paul is a highly educated man, spoke several languages. He was born a Roman citizen, which most of these Jews were not, okay? I mean, Paul's pedigree of who he was and his education levels, I mean, it's like, you don't get any higher than this guy. The fact that Paul becomes a convert to Christianity, particularly initially being the greatest persecutor of Christianity, is a stunning reversal. I mean, it would be, you know, it would be like if Bin Laden would have gotten born again or something. I mean, it would just freak the willies out of everybody. I mean, it's, it was that dramatic. Paul, the guy who went and becomes a Christian himself, he is a brilliant man. He knows the scripture. He knows it all. So they're dragging him off. And Paul, who speaks both languages, knows the guy that's in charge speaks Greek. How he knows that, I don't know. So uh, he says to him in Greek, uh, can I say something to you? And right away, the guy says, you speak Greek? And aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? This is what they had. They had problems with these guys. They keep having these insurrections and killing uh, Roman soldiers and so I mean, they just had it. He just assumed this is who this guy was, Okay. And Paul said, look, I'm a Jew uh, from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. I mean, it's a big deal to be from this city. Please let me speak to the people. Well, after receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, which is the language actually that Jesus spoke, brothers and fathers, listen to me in my defense. When they all heard him speak in Aramaic, oh, they all got quiet. Then Paul said to them, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel, who is, if you look historically, he was like a major historian and teacher uh, at that time, and was thoroughly trained in the law by our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you today. I persecuted the followers of this way. At this point, they weren't called 
Christians, I don't think what they call Christians yet, or maybe they're starting to, I don't know, but one of the ways they refer to themselves as the way, they just follow these Christians or people of the way. He said, I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women, throwing them into prison as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. They all know who I am. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now you notice, nobody says a word. I mean, this is the city that had crucified Jesus some, however many decades earlier. And he's talking about Jesus as being God. They're all listening. My companions saw the light, but they didn't understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord, I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that if you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. This is, he's just basically retelling what happened to what we read earlier in Acts. He's sharing his testimony, if you will. This is how I became a Christian. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law. He's a good man if he observed the law, right? That's what all this is about. And highly respected by all the Jews living there. But he's a Christian, he stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Now he's talking about miracles in the name of Jesus. He can see. They don't say a word. Then I said, the God of our, then he said, the God of our ancestors has, uh, has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one. He's talking about the Messiah and to hear words from his mouth. They don't say a word. Jesus is speaking to him, knocks him to the ground, blinds him. This guy comes in Jesus' name. He's healed. God has allowed the righteous one to come and preach to you. He's talking about Jesus. Nobody has a reaction. You will be his witnesses to all people of what uh, you have seen and heard. Some of these people have actually seen Jesus. Some of them, the implication, Joe, is some of these guys could have been believers. I mean, how crazy is this? Because uh, James said, man, there's thousands of Jews everywhere, but you've got to be careful. Thousands of Jews everywhere that become believers in Jesus, but you've got to be careful because they're really ticked. So nobody has a problem. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. Wash your sins away, calling on his name. That's what the message he got. When I returned to Jerusalem, so now he says, I got baptized in his name. And I get up. Not a peep. Nobody says a word. When I returned to Jerusalem, was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Still, no one's responding. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from synagogue, from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in me. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. He was in on the very first Christian that had been killed. And then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. 
Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live! They went crazy! It was this idea that you could know God without coming through the religious system they had known. All right? Now, some of you can understand this because some of you have hardcore parents or hardcore Lutherans or hardcore, you know, uh, you know whatever, Catholics, whatever, and they can't imagine. The fact that you find God, they don't really care about it. It's that you did it outside their church. That's what they handle. What? How come you didn't do it through our church? I don't know. I found it over. Ah, they go crazy. Well, multiply that by a thousand. These people, I mean, they're refusal to accept people other than Jews or people that wouldn't come through their system and make sure they go through all the rituals and make all these laws and rules. Ah! Just tick them off. This is the issue that divided Jews from Christianity. It wasn't, well, the Jews didn't accept Jesus. Not true. Thousands of them had. Jews just going to expect a Christian. No, no problem with it. Jesus doing miracles, I had no problem with it. Jesus speaking to the guys in visions and dreams. <laughs> happens all the time. Oh, the Gentiles. You're going to go tear this message with the Gentiles. Well, as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. And if you doubt this, all you got to do is watch the news. Watch how people in the Middle East respond to things. They do this to this day. It's very much a culture. Like Italians always talking with their hands. Puerto Ricans arguing. They don't even know why they're just arguing. <laughs> Part of their culture. When they get mad, they go crazy, and they scream, and they throw things, and they just take dust and throw it in the air. Ah! Which I would think. They get pretty dusty. So they're flinging dust in the air, and the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. Really? Just ask me. <laughs> Don't flog me. Paul didn't want to get flogged. Nobody likes being flogged. Flogging is a very unpleasant experience. Paul had been flogged many, many times. This is very familiar with this experience. They stretched him out to flog him. And Paul, again, the man is a genius. He knows the culture. He knows the rules. He is no idiot. Now, when he gets into some of these areas, he's got limited options and stuff, but now he's here. He's under the direct, all these Romans and stuff. He knows the rules. Everything goes. So they've stretched him out. They're ready to beat the snot out of him. And Paul said to the centurion, the guy in charge, I got a question for you. Just a little, little question. Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? No, it's not. You didn't mess with the Romans. The Romans ruled the world. Those who were fortunate enough to be called Roman citizens, I mean, it was like, you know, it's like being in, in the middle of some dark country in the middle of nowhere, but you're an American citizen. They don't mess with that much. Well, unless you're, you know, groups I want to kill just for that now, but I mean, it was... That was a big power thing. I'm a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked me, you tell me you're a Roman citizen? And he goes, yep. And then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money to become a Roman citizen. It's hard. 
to become a Roman citizen, unlike getting into this country. <laughs> don't, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Shut up. All right? But <laughs> it was hard because he's had to pay a lot of money for this. And Paul said, yeah, but I was born a citizen. Woo-hoo! He's a natural born Roman citizen who happened to be a Jew and happened to be brilliant, highly educated, off the charts. There's nobody who had a higher level of education at that time than this guy. He's like, this is the PhD of PhDs. He's got it all. Multiple languages. He understands all this stuff. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, I'm so glad I didn't hit him. <laughs> right? Because the, they were brutal. The Romans, they just chop you up and ask questions later. Which is what they're doing to Paul. They're going to beat the snot out of him and ask questions later. I'm like, can we do the questions first? All right? So, all of this stuff. So, all this. Ooh, ooh. So they immediately withdrew, and the commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. No, no, no. You can't do that. Because the Romans will get ticked, and boy, when they get ticked, it's an ugly situation. So Paul has got them. <laughs> then we'll pick it up next week. And... Uh, because he does the same thing when he gets in front of the Sanhedrin. He is brilliant. And he turns the tables on all of them. And he gets them all yelling and screaming at each other. And they forget he's there. I mean, it's brilliant how he does all this stuff. But as the prophecy says, he winds up in the arms of the Romans. And they drag him off eventually all the way to Rome, where eventually that's where his story ends. Anyway, it still gets really dramatic. And the detail starts getting even thicker as we start reading some of this, you can tell already as you're reading it, it feels more like a novel, right? And it really gets a lot more detail. He just stays at this level because he's an eyewitness to all of this stuff. And, and it's very, very entertaining. So we'll pick that up next week. Let's, let's end in prayer. <laughs> Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of uh, guys like Paul who went before us and the Christians there and the troubles they had to endure. We're grateful, Lord, that we don't have uh, these kinds of troubles. Oh, we got people who don't like us or get mad at us for things kind of related to this, but not, not at this level. Lord, we see the boldness that he had. Help us to be bold in our situation. Yeah, my grandma might like, like, might like it because we don't go to her church anymore or whatever it is, but help us, Lord, just to be kind and bold and just continue to serve you. Uh, be confident in who you are. And, uh, and we're thankful. We're thankful for our nation. We pray that uh, religious liberties would continue in this nation that we don't ever find ourselves in a situation like these early Christians did because this is awful. We do know there are Christians around the world, Lord, that to this day are being brutalized, particularly under ISIS control. So God, we ask you for a miracle. We pray, God, that you would greatly intervene and protect those brothers and sisters in Christ. And we pray that this evil there that is killing and torturing those who trust in your name, that that would be broken. God, we just ask for this in Jesus' name. Uh, continue to do your work by your Holy Spirit and all of us and all throughout the world. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen. All right, see you next Wednesday night.